couple of minutes, why on earth is this in the Bible? And the reason for that is because, spoiler alert, God is not mentioned. Not Yahweh, not the Lord, not nothing. That's actually quite shocking because the Bible is God's word. The Bible is about God. But he's not in the book of Esther. Where is God in Esther? Uh, The apparent absence of God has left some godly Christians uh, pondering. Should we even bother with the book of Esther? Uh, You may be familiar with Martin Luther, a key figure in Christian church history. Uh, He said this, I am so hostile to the book of 2 Maccabees and Esther that I could wish that they never existed at all. Wow. Begs the question, should we even bother? I can find another book, starting with E. Exodus, Ezra, we could preach on that. Uh, That would maybe be a good use of time. But no, we should study Esther. It's in the Jewish Bible, and it's also in the Christian Bible. But it's not always been met with the warmest embrace. You may have heard sermons, something on the lines of, be more pretty and courageous, like Esther. Be less like the sinful king. Be in the right place at the right time, like Mordecai. But that's far from the point of this book. God's absence isn't to highlight the human figures, but rather we should see theological significance in the apparent absence of God from this story. And to understand God's apparent absence, we need to understand the biblical theme of exile. Well, what is exile? Well, we start at the start of the Bible with the opposite of exile. At the very start of the Bible, we see God's people with God enjoying his blessings under his rule with him. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. But it's not perfect. And because of sin, Adam and Eve are cast out. They are exiled from God and face the consequences of their rebellion, death. And tracking quickly through the Old Testament, we read that God makes big promises to Abraham's offspring to, for their people to be blessed again, back in relationship with God, and that the Jewish nation would be a fruitful, large nation. And then we find Jewish people in slavery in Egypt, but God graciously rescues his people out of slavery. And because he has rescued them, he gives them the law to which to live by so that they may be fruitful in the land, stay in the land. And all future generations were supposed to live under this law in the land. And in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 8, there's a whole list of curses and blessings. If the people of God were faithful and followed God's law, they would be blessed. If not, they would face judgment and be exiled from the land. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, God's people do disobey. They sin against God, the kings of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the judges. There's a downward human spiral of sin. Now God is gracious. He reminds them through the prophets to turn back to him. But they still do not repent. So in the end, judgment comes. God's people are cast out of the promised land. God's people are exiled. God does what he said he would do in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, then flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And so Esther chapter 1 and 2, the whole story of Esther, is a story of God's people in exile. 
God's people had no king. God's people were not in the land. God's people were not enjoying the blessings. And God is silent. And so by way of con- that's the context of the book of Esther, we arrive in chapters 1 and 2, and we meet a non-Jewish king whose name is really hard to pronounce. Asherish, I guess. Uh, to flag, he is better known by his Greek name, King Xerxes. I can say Xerxes way easier, so I'm going to go with it. Every time that comes up, King Xerxes, same person, Greek name. And we read of his lavish parties and these other couple of verses that were all to say of his lavish pomp, the great foods, the great marvel. This is a picture of power and wealth. King Xerxes is powerful and wealthy. And in so doing, the book of Esther opens us up to ask a question. Where does true power really lie? That's our question for this afternoon. Where does true power really lie? Does it lie in the king of the kingdom of Persia? We read in Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Asherus, the uh, the Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Xerxes sat on the royal throne in Susa, the citadel, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. We can see at the start, Xerxes is showing just how powerful he is, just how wealthy, just how much wealth he has amassed. By way of quick application, as we look around Brisbane, we have many kingdoms. Now, I'm not talking about the government of Brisbane, but I'm talking about the kingdom of your bank account, the kingdom of your home, the kingdom of your work, job. All these are good gifts, and they all provide us with some type of power in this world. Power to control our living arrangements, to be comfortable. Power to control our situations that we're faced with. And even power to control others. In Esther, King Xerxes claims to have great power. But as the story unfolds, we will see what happens to this power. Casting your eyes to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the king of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven eunuchs, and then jumping to verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. This king of the kingdom of Persia, for all his power and wealth, well, his wife simply says to him, I'm not coming to your party. And he comes crashing down. Rather comical, isn't it? But it's really the narrator's theme of emphasizing in this section that while Xerxes may be powerful, He cannot simply do as he pleases. He cannot simply do all that he wishes. But this is a reminder for us. Like Xerxes, you and I are not in control. We cannot simply do as we wish. See, sadly, left to our own devices, we choose to be self-centered, to objectify others like Xerxes have done. As we've already confessed tonight, as we were led by Tara, we have failed to love each other as we should. Sadly, people use power for self-gain rather than for self-sacrifice. 
And like Xerxes, all human beings want power to control our situation. And there's a key application here for us, that human beings are not in control. Perhaps I don't need to remind you of the situations where you have been hit with challenges, with chances, with changes of this world. In the New Testament, the Apostle James, he writes about this. In James chapter 4, he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. We are not in control, but we know the one who is, the Lord. And if we don't have a posture of, if the Lord wills, then we will end up looking more like King Xerxes than King Jesus. How did King Xerxes respond? At the end of verse 12, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Sounds familiar. Sounds like the child at Woolworths seeing the chocolate bars on the way out near the checkout. It's convenient. It's within their grasp. It's within their power to grab that chocolate bar. And the, the guardian says, no, no. You are not getting that chocolate bar and they are angry us adults in the room we are far better at covering up our anger but the reality is when we lose control of a situation when things don't go to our plans the anger burns within all xerxes can do is rage which can be dangerous especially if you're surrounded by so-called wise friends who make a trivial dispute about a queen not wanting to come to a party into a search for a new monarchy. We pick it up in verse 19. We heard their wise advice. It says, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to, become, to come before King Xerxes, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And if we continue to read, the king listened, and Vashti was no longer queen. And the king of the kingdom of Persia was on the lookout for a new wife. You can imagine the reality TV show. What's his criteria for a new wife? Is it personality? Is it brains? No, no. Esther chapter 2, verse 2. You can cast your eyes there with me. It says, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And then verse 4, Let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Not based on personality, but based on looks. Not a way to treat women. Not a way to choose a wife. In chapter 2, we meet the main characters of the book of Esther. We meet Esther and Mordecai. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citizen, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jah, son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Pausing there, Mordecai is Jewish. And if you're familiar with the Bible, Mordecai is actually related to King Saul. Something is unfinished in the narrative here. Uh, picking it up in verse 6 who, Mordecai, had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadadash, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her home as his own daughter. 
Esther here is described as a beautiful young woman. But the key takeaway is Esther is also Jewish, a part of God's people. And she's raised by Mordecai. And with the king on the lookout for a new wife, Esther, this beautiful Jewish woman, is taken to the king's palace. Verse 9. And the young woman, Esther, pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in Harem. Esther had not made her sorry, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of Harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Esther didn't even do anything, but now is queen, based on her looks. Uh, I remember going to a soccer game uh, with Sam and Tom, and at the end of the soccer game, the man of a match is awarded to that person who does the most for their team. And rather comically, what did the crowd do when the man of the match was announced? There was some guy at the back of the road that shouted out, he didn't even do anything. You may have been at that soccer game and heard the same thing. Esther, she didn't really do anything. She was beautiful. She had a beautiful figure. She got lucky with her looks and she now is queen. And jumping all the way down to verse 17, we read, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther is now queen. And we're almost finished with our narrative for this afternoon. To wrap it up, in verse 21, we really see a picture that Mordecai is in the right place at the right time to foil a plan against the king. It says in verse 21, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Pigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told Queen Esther, and the, the Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai was in the right place at the right time and saved the king. Which goes full circle to our question at the start, where does power really lie? Well, as we've sprinted to the events of Esther chapter 1 and 2, it's clear that power does not lie in the king of the kingdom of Persia, for he is not in control of these events. His queen did not come to his party. His mates escalated this little issue into a major national emergency. He has a new pretty wife, Esther, who he doesn't even know is Jewish. And his life only gets saved by a random guy called Mordecai being at the right place at the right time. Does that look like power to you? Compare this to the opening verses of all his pomp and his claim for power. He is not in control at all. So the question remains, where does power truly lie? Where does true power lie? We move to point two, king of the kingdom of God. Well, a small decision from a queen for not coming to a party snowballed into an opening in the monarchy. And then there was all these 
coincidences. I wonder if you noticed them. For example, example, Esther just happened to be Jewish, a part of God's people. Esther just happened to be beautiful, and we know that suited the king. Esther just be, happened to be favoured by the king out of the whole multitude of women. Mordecai just happens to be related to King Saul. Interesting. And Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life right place at the right time. And as we speed through the book of Esther, we keep seeing these coincidences keep coming up and up and up. This has led Gordon McConville, a key professor in Old Testament theology, to write the story of Esther can therefore become a powerful statement about the reality of God in a world which he appears absent from. The people are in exile, but God is still gracious. God is still caring for them. He is there even if he appears to not be. Esther really is the greatest book in the Bible to teach us perhaps the most underused in our Christian vocabulary, the word of providence, God's providence. Providence simply means God's protective and powerful care, preserving and governing all of his creatures and their actions. Uh, J.I. Packer, one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century, he writes, uh, words are on the screen for this quote, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, such as fortune, chance, luck, or fate. I actually think we need to get rid of those words in our vocabulary. All that happens to them is divine plans, and each event comes as a new summons to trust obey and rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. Even when we can't make sense of it, God is working for our good. In Esther, we read of God's providence. Through, through his providence, Esther is queen. Her rise to the top of that monarchy is really a flag in the ground in the whole story of the book of Esther. Because if you're familiar with the story, in the chapters to come, there is actually a real and present threat to God's people in this story. There is a threat to wipe the Jewish people out. If that was successful, how would God fulfill his promises to Abraham to make the Jewish people a great nation from which they would be blessed? How would the promised Messiah come from the line of David? A lot is on the line in the book of Esther. You see, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is traced back to David. He is traced back to Abram, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There is a lot at stake in Esther. If the Jews were wiped out, dot, dot, dot. So see clearly, long before Jesus is born in a manger, God is providentially ruling over the story of Esther. Though he is quiet, he is orchestrating the events. Uh, it reminds me of a picture of an orchestra. Uh, there's a photograph on the screen. Uh, the, the orchestra is conducted by a conductor. Now, sometimes the conductor is obvious. They may wear outlandish clothing, but really most of the time the conductor is dressed in black. And even in new theatres, the conductor is hidden underneath the stage. His hand is hidden. You cannot see him in the picture, but the orchestra follows his commands. 
And then at the appointed time, the conductor makes himself known. He stands up in front of the crowds to receive the honor, the glory, and the praise that he deserves for conducting all these events. Even though the people didn't see it, the conductor deserves the praise. Likewise, at the appointed time in human history, King Jesus, God's appointed king of his kingdom, makes himself known. In Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The creator, the conductor of all time makes himself known through Jesus. And as we look at the life of Jesus, he doesn't count his power as something to lord over people, but he uses his power as self-sacrifice for the sake of people. And as we look at his life, as we pick up the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus' life, we see that a whole host of random coincidences happen. Uh, Picture with me. There's a woman at the well who just happens to be at that well, who Jesus took a long way to go and see. Uh, There's people in need of healing, just happen to be at the entrance where Jesus was walking through. And my favorite, there was a donkey that just happened to be at the right place at the right time for King Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. All these coincidences are not coincidences at all. You see, like God is in control in the story of Esther, Jesus is in control. Indeed, orchestrating the events of his life to prove that he is the Christ, and indeed, orchestrating the events of his death in our place on the Roman cross, who was no, which, which was no accident, It was God's plan to save us. And you want to know where real power lies? Well, Jesus in John chapter 10, the words will be on the screen, speaking of his death and resurrection, he says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority, power, to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, Jesus had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again, lay it down for our sake. The ultimate example of self-sacrifice and the power to be raised from the dead, proving to us, as we trust in Jesus, we too will rise. Such is the power of the gospel. All this orchestrated according to the definite and foreknowledge of God. Where does power really lie? It's in the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our last question. Well, how do we respond? Uh, If you had the opportunity to meet a monarch today, the king of England, you would go into a room beforehand and they would train you how to respond, curtsy, shake hands, and so on. But the reality is, responding to King Jesus is far, far more important than responding to King Charles or so on. So there's two responses that I want to talk about tonight. For those who are here with us who are not yet trusting in Jesus, I want to say that, welcome, we are glad that you are here. And even though God may be silent in your life, there is a creator who alone is worthy of your honor and praise. For he created you, and by your will, by his will, rather, he, you, exists. This means that you are not the product of chance. You are not the product of luck 
of random atoms hitting each other, but rather you are here created wonderfully and fearfully by a God who loves you. Isn't that a better story? Isn't that good news? But the reality is you are not giving him the honor that he deserves. You may be a good person, but you are not giving him the honor to God as creator. So how do we respond? We honor God. In John chapter 5, words are on the screen again. It says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The first response to the Creator, to the King of the Kingdom, is to honour the Son, to believe in Him, giving Him the honour that He deserves. Don't wait, for we are not in control of tomorrow. The second response uh, for the Christians who are here, the many Christians that are here, now is that there is an initial trusting moment when we become a Christian, which we celebrate. But there is also a continual trust, not to hold on to our salvation by the strength of our grip, but as Tara has already shared, God holds on to us. He is in control. He is providentially caring for us. But our lives tell us the reality of just how out of control we are of this world. Whether it be sickness, breakdown of relationship, health, job insecurity, bad things happening to seemingly good people, we are not in control. Now, there is a power in stories. Please do remember the story of Esther. That though God's actions may be hidden, he is there. He is in control. He is powerful. And, and sometimes our plans don't match up with his plans. Now, um, I've worked particularly hard today to find a quote that matched the sermon by a gentleman named Tim Keller, whom I'm sure uh, you perhaps have heard of, and the sad news that a couple of days ago he went to be with the Lord. He says about this in his book, Making Sense of God, Western societies are perhaps the worst societies in the history of the whole world at preparing people for suffering and death. We have all this power at our fingertips to control our living situations, to control our comforts, to control and avoid suffering all we can. However, suffering comes. And it's easier to look back after the suffering's over to see God's hand in the suffering and, and map out his faithfulness there. But in the moment, it's all the more hard. But where God's actions and purposes aren't presently clear to us, our trust and obedience becomes all the more apparent as we keep trusting Jesus, knowing that God is in control and he is worthy of our trust because he has shown himself to be worthy as we've seen in the book of Esther so far. In tough times, I love the words from uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves, the opposite of King Xerxes, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties onto him. Why? Because he cares for you. God is the object of our trust. He is trustworthy, and we can cast our present anxieties onto him. And at the end of that chapter in 1 Peter, it says to him, God, be dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
He has dominion. He is in charge. So we can trust him. God is not far from us. He is close and he is in control. Uh, I'll invite Lucy, Will and Matt up uh, as we conclude the sermon for this evening. We have seen that true power lies in the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. And at Christ Our Refuge, our newly forming church community, we want to be known as gospel people, good news people. And a, and a mark of a gospel person is gospel confidence. Now, that confidence doesn't come from our own abilities or strategies that we may think up now or in the future, but in the, our confidence is in the sovereign God. This cannot result in our pride, but rather our humility, knowing that God is in control and he is providentially caring for us. You see in Esther chapter 1 and 2 that through no human initiative God brought Esther to the king, the sinful king who wasn't really powerful at all. But in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through no human initiative God has brought a great multitude of sinful people from every tongue, tribe and nation to the king of kings. This is a far better story than that of the book of Esther. So know that the God whose hand is hidden in Esther and see his son clearly, who has sent him into this world so that may, we may be with him, exiled no more because our sin has been dealt with at the cross of Christ. And we long for Jesus' return when he will come in glory. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your grace towards us that you have not left us, but have sent the King of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, to make yourself known to us, as well as the way of our salvation, trusting in him alone. We thank you for the lessons of Esther, and that true power isn't found in earthly kingdoms, but in the kingdom, King of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. We praise you that through Jesus Christ, our ascended Lord, who was seen by his disciples after his resurrection and in their sight went into heaven to sit at your right hand and prepare a place for us, exiled no more, and that where he might also be, and where we might also be, and reign with him in glory. Through Jesus' name, amen.